Let's uh, quickly just uh, summarize where we have come from. In the last couple chapters of Acts, we've been seeing something. We've been seeing that the gospel comes to all sorts of people. And if you have ears to hear, if you are spiritually sensitive of heart, these chapters have been glorious good news for you because they have been uh, the good news of who Jesus comes to save. We, we saw in Acts 8, the first part of Acts 8, that the gospel goes to the unlikely. Remember, the Samaritans were the, the, the unlikely ones to receive the gospel. They were the kind of the half-breeds. They were the ones you didn't really want to receive the gospel if you were a Jew. But the, the gospel goes to the unlikely. It also goes to the outsider. We saw this with the Ethiopian eunuch. He had everything against him physically. He was separated from Israel physically, and he also had 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 a had a bodily issue that actually separated him from the temple itself. He couldn't get to God, but the gospel goes to the eunuch. There is a place for him in the grace of Christ. And then we saw last week as well, to our surprise, that the gospel goes to the enemy, the great enemy of the church, Saul, soon to be called Paul, his Greek name receives the gospel of Jesus Christ and responds to it in obedience. And today, there's, there's, a, there's another message for us. The gospel goes to the unclean. The gospel goes to the unclean. The truth of the gospel means that, to put it in you know, Luke 15 language, God eats and drinks and has fellowship with sinners. Those people that God shouldn't associate with, the unclean ones. Those who are not worthy of God's table get to come and be with God in Jesus Christ. They get to enjoy close fellowship. Meals in the ancient time meant fellowship, close fellowship. And you didn't just share a meal with anyone. Uh, It could be spiritually dangerous for you to share a meal with anyone, just anyone. But God, in Christ Jesus has fellowship with us. Now, what do I mean by unclean? Well, in these chapters, we see that the gospel finally extends formally and officially to those people totally outside of the Jewish national faith. We see that the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Now, there were there were several different ways that Jews talked and thought about Gentiles. Let me just give you four words that kind of sum up how a Jew viewed a Gentile, and, and some of these are, 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 are right descriptions. They actually come from God's word. Uh, number one, a Jew saw a Gentile as somebody who was an outsider, an outsider of outsider. We already saw with the Ethiopian eunuch that the gospel goes to the outsider, but the, the, the Gentile was outside of the covenant of God, the grace of God, all of the blessings of God. They were totally outside of it. They sometimes were called the uncircumcised. They were outside of a covenant relationship with God. On a most basic level, the, the name Gentile meant you were without God. That's what the Bible tells us. You are without God. That's how a Jew looked at a Gentile. Another word is they were fruitless. Paul himself in Romans 11 referred to Gentiles as an uncultivated, unfruitful olive branch. And, and really, that's that's metaphorical language to talk about. Hey, you have nothing to bring to God that's truly pleasing. You don't bear any fruit to God, to His glory. 
uh, you are unfruitful to God. Another way that the, the Jews referred to Gentiles was uh, that they were enemies. We already saw this with, with Saul. We already saw this with Saul. Uh, but the, the Jewish nation had it pounded and drilled into their head from the very beginning of their existence that all of the nations around them were enemies. Uh, these people around me are trying to destroy, corrupt me from either the outside with war or from the inside with pagan religions. They are enemies. They are dangerous. We need to stay away from them. They, they will destroy you. But there's another way that the Jews looked at the Gentiles, and this, this might be a very predominant way, as we're going to see in our chapters. Uh, they were unclean. They were unclean. The whole sacrificial system that occurred at the temple just pounded it into their heads that you needed to be clean and pure to go to God. And if you were unclean, you were separated from God, and you were unable to come into his presence. You could become unclean as a Jew by several different ways. You could break the law. You could touch something that was unclean. Particularly, you could touch something that was dead, and that would make you very unclean. Um, consequently, uh, Jews love to call Gentiles dogs, and not because they loved them and they had a special warm place for them in their hearts. Just wanted a little dog, a little dog. <laughs> the dogs were basically the sanitation service of the ancient Near East. You would leave something outside, and the dog would clean it up for you. So they were unclean. This is who the Gentiles were. They were dogs, right? You don't know what that dog ate last night. I used to have a dog. Oh, she was terrible. <laughs> but sometimes she would come back because she'd escape. She'd go out in the neighborhood carousing and she'd come back and the, the stink of her breath was just horrific. And you just wondered, what in the, where in the world has this dog been? That's who Gentiles were in Jewish eyes. They were unclean. And remember what that means. They are outside of God's Favor. They cannot enter God's presence. Matter of fact, the Jews would do extreme things to separate themselves from Gentiles. They would, if they traveled in Gentile lands before they came back into uh, the borders of Israel, they would shake the dust off of their clothes because the clothes caused them to be unclean. Uh, they would be careful not to eat or, or have, have Gentiles as their guests or to be guests because to eat with Gentiles was to, um, touch their uncleanness and become unclean. They even were careful not to use utensils that were manufactured by Gentiles. Or if they did, they had to bring them through this cleansing process. It's basically like this. Uh, they treated the Gentiles like, like I treated everything <laughs> during COVID. <laughs> like, well, let's get some apples from the store. Let's spray it down with some hand sanitizer, get it all clean, because I don't want to become unclean, right? Back in my foolish state. Um, that's who the Gentiles were. They were unclean. And the, the simple question of our passage today is, how does God save? How does God save Jews? How does God save Gentiles? How does God save unclean people? This is commonly known as, uh, Acts 10 is commonly known as the, the Gentile uh, Pentecost. 
There are many things that happen in this chapter that closely tie and completely parallel with Acts 2. It's, it's absolutely like the same. You read the two chapters, the same things happen in both of them. And, and the point here is that the Gentiles received Jesus the same way the Jews did. That's very significant. That's very significant about what, what the gospel means for you. The way God saves a Jew is the same way he saves a non-Jew. There is not one kind of person that uh, receives God's grace because they do all of these good things and they make themselves more favorable to God. That, that's, that's not one person that does it that way and another person that relies on his grace. No, all depend on Christ. All depend on the work that Jesus did on the cross. Uh, the religious person who grew up in the church... And the non-religious person who has never come into a church building or doesn't even know what any of the books of the Bible are, those people both need the same gospel message. And that's what we see today. All are, you could say it this way, all are equally unclean before God. All are separated before God. All need the message of Jesus Christ. All need the same gospel message. The Gentiles have the same have need the same gospel message that the Jews do because everyone does not deserve God to eat and be with them. So this is what we're going to look at. We're going to just kind of summarize, kind of summarize the, the gist of this, this, uh, three chapter, uh, three chapter section in, in three ways. We're going to look at how, um, God saves through the same Preparation, God saves through the same gospel message, and God saves through the same um, confirming attestation. We'll, we'll talk about that as we go through it. But first off, let's look. God saves through, there, God saves through the same sovereign preparation. God saves through the same prover, uh, providential sovereign preparation. Our God is a God of providence and sovereignty, and he gets people where they need to be, and he prepares their heart to receive the message of the gospel that they need to receive. Now, I'm going to be kind of loose in how I understand the, the word same there. Uh, here, it's God, God works sovereignly, we see, in both the, the, the Jewish messenger, Peter, and uh, the Gentile uh, receiver, Cornelius, to put them to the same spot so that Peter can speak the good news to Cornelius. God works through the same kind of sovereign preparation. And I think it's interesting, right? We see in Acts that Jesus is continuing to act, to pursue um, pursue his purposes in the world. And just as Jesus went after the disciples and called them to follow him, so we also see that Jesus pursues and prepares and orchestrates a Gentile to come to him to follow him as well. Now, once again, we've got a lot to cover, so I'm going to kind of summarize some large chunks of our passage. I don't have enough time to read it. Um, you see there in Acts 8, sorry, Acts 9, verse 32, it's kind of where we left off. We, we, we kind of just talked about uh, Saul's conversion, and then finally, at the end of our passage last week, we hinted at that, that he was finally welcomed into the Jerusalem fellowship, so to speak, and then there's that summary verse there in 31 about how the church was built up throughout the, the region. Well, now here in 932 all the way through 43, we kind of see this seemingly random, out-of-place series of incidents in the life of Peter. Peter goes to these, these regions kind of, um, on the coastal area 
uh, right along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea on the West Bank, as it's kind of called sometimes, uh, the upper northern West Bank, you could say. And he, he heals some people, and the message of Jesus spreads. And on the surface level, they're like, this seems kind of random. Why is this happening? Well, there's two reasons, one good one and one better one. Uh, the good one, the good one why this is happening is, well, Saul's persecution has ended and now we see Peter free to continue to move freely and the, the work of Jesus continues. You see a repetition here, verse 35. Um, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord, right? This, this leads to, um, great repentance. And then you see down in 42, um, once again, another healing. A really amazing story of Tabitha, who is healed, or brought back from the dead, really. And, and we see this results in many believing in the Lord. So, so in one sense, right, Jesus is continuing to pursue his purposes. He's continuing to seek out his people that he chooses to save, and he's using the instrument of the apostle Peter to spread the good news of Jesus. But I think there's also a, another better reason. Uh, the Lord Jesus is sovereignly preparing and placing the Apostle Peter where Peter needs to be to open up a whole new door in the, the Jesus movement of the, the first century world, right? Uh, the Lord Jesus is putting Peter in a place close to a Gentile city called Caesarea that is full of Gentiles in order to spread the word of Jesus fully and officially into uh, the Gentile world. How is Peter prepared? Well, you see, he's slowly moving closer and closer to Gentile territory. As we see, um, he seems he seems to be un, un, uh, unmoved by being closer and closer to Gentiles. He seems to be convinced that this is what Jesus would have him to do. Matter of fact, at the very end of chapter 9, you see he, he stays with a certain Simon, a tanner. That's interesting. A tanner is a leather worker. And you know what a leather worker does? He works with animal skins. He works with dead bodies. So already we see Simon Peter is, is kind of uh, not so worried about uh, impurity. It's almost as if he knows, hey, I'm following Jesus. This is Jesus's work, and I'm going to pursue his his work, and I don't need to be afraid of these ceremonial laws. Matter of fact, that's that's an argument I would make. I, I think Jesus is preparing Peter through slow and progressive and easy decisions. Right? Peter Peter is being faced with going and ministering in 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 Gentile areas or close to Gentile areas, and he's okay with that. He he not only does that, he touches and goes to a sick man. He goes near a dead body. We see that with with Tabitha, and then he lives with a tanner for a while. Now. Now, why, how is this preparing Peter to reach the Gentiles? Well, I think what's happening here is, is Peter is remembering, remembering how his Lord Jesus acted while Jesus was on earth. All of these stories have striking resemblance to the way Jesus lived. Jesus healed somebody who was dead. He actually uh, healed a woman by the name of Tabitha and said, Arise. Jesus did the exact same thing. Jesus healed many it is, it is very interesting, and as, and as Peter is progressing through this area, I'm thinking he is thinking about what Jesus has done and what Jesus did, and that gives him confidence to kind of work in this area of the world. Now, at the same time, we also see sovereign preparations of the Lord in the life of a Gentile. 
a man named Cornelius. Cornelius, you see there in 10, 1, all the way through 3, we're introduced to this God-fearing centurion. First off, a little bit of background for you. A centurion was a Roman soldier who was over approximately about 100 men. Uh, a century, as you know, is a hundred years. A centurion is over a hundred men. So that's kind of how they, they, they thought of it. And then we also see that he was a centurion who was known uh, of what was known as the Italian cohort. A cohort is a, is a group of soldiers. A cohort is about six centuries. So you'd see six centurions in a single cohort, about 600 men approximately. Ten cohorts of Roman soldiers made up a legion of men, which is the largest kind of uh, soldier division of troops. So we see there's, there's a very large contingent of troops here in Caesarea, which was the capital, the Roman capital of kind of the, the Israelite province, the Judea province. And he is one of the leaders of these soldiers. Another thing you need to know about Caesarea was it, it was not only the capital kind of, of, of Rome in the area, but it was also kind of the, 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 the pagan central uh, place in that area of the world. It was a Roman city. It, it had many temples that worshipped pagan Roman gods. And to an Israelite mind, it was a very pagan place to be. It was a, it was a, it was an evil place to be. It was an unclean place to be. It wasn't a place that you'd want to go for any period of time. It was a place where if you worshiped one God, you were considered foreign and you were considered strange. It was a Gentile city. But we see this man, Cornelius, surprisingly, he is a Roman centurion and he fears God. Not only that, he prays continually to God. He prays during Jewish times to pray, and he also gives generously to the people. He exclusively worships the God of Israel alone. Now, now, why, why is he pursuing and worshiping the God of Israel? They don't tell us, but it seems as though he is unimpressed with the idols of his world, right? He's in a city full of idols. He has a lot of position and power, but he doesn't care about those things. He wants true power. He wants true religion more than he wants anything that he can get. Now, let's be clear here. He was very religious, but he was not saved, right? He was not saved. We see in chapter eleven fourteen. That when he is told to come to Peter, he needs to go to Peter to be saved. So, even though he is religious, even though he is prepared, he's, even though Jesus is preparing him through this, uh, this understanding of the Jewish religion, he is not someone who is saved. We'll keep moving, though, and come back to that in a minute. Um, 10.3, all the way through 23, we see that both men are kind of prepared and brought together. We see Cornelius has a vision of an angel that tells him to go get Peter and bring him to Caesarea. Not, notice, to go down to Joppa, uh, more of a Jewish port where Peter was, and hear the news that Peter has to tell him. No, the angel tells Cornelius to go and send for Peter to come to Caesarea, the, the, the Gentile the Gentile city. Interesting. And, and Peter also has a vision um, through the Spirit, we are told. And this, the Spirit, there's this crazy vision that Peter has. He sees this great sheet descending down it, and in it are full, and it says in verse 12 of 
all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds. This would have been full of of unclean animals. And then the Spirit, of course, tells him to rise and kill and eat. And Peter first says, no, no, I'm a Jew. I shouldn't eat these things. But then the Spirit tells him uh, in verse 15, what God has made clean, do not call common. And then, of course, we see that the Spirit kind of interprets what this vision means. Not only does the vision happen three times, but then the Spirit also interprets for Peter what it means when these men from Cornelius just show up at Peter's door. The Spirit says to him, notice in verse 19, And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So now Peter's connecting the dots. Oh, when, when, when Jesus says, what I have made clean, do not call common, he is referring to Gentiles who we once thought were unclean. Uh, something has changed in Peter, and I would say, yes, part of it is that these these food laws and these fellowship laws, uh, um, in one sense, were kind of built up on tradition by the Jewish people. Like, there wasn't actually an explicit law in the Old Testament that said, hey, do not eat with Gentiles. Well, these were kind of additions that the Jews made to protect themselves from breaking other laws. But I'd say, more importantly than that, Peter is beginning to realize and be reminded of what he knows about Jesus, right? Hey, who is Jesus? What did Jesus do? And who was he? And we'll talk about that in a minute. But just notice a few things. Verse 28. Verse 28, when Peter finally comes to Cornelius, he says this, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone um, of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Something has changed in Peter. And then notice down there in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, um, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter apparently understood that God was making a change, in a sense. But he also knew from being with Jesus that God shows no partiality, right? Hey, this is who Jesus is. God shows no partiality. Partiality, by the way, it means to show favoritism towards, right? To pick people that that you like for some reason because they are pleasing to you, right? God doesn't show, in some sense, God doesn't show partiality. And of course, maybe some of you are asking, wait a minute, yeah, God's, God's partial? What about election? Isn't election kind of the whole idea that God is partial towards some and, and impartial or rejecting of others? Well, it's not the same thing as favoritism. Favoritism uh, chooses people because there is something valuable in them, right? God's election is his free grace that he gives to unworthy uh, sinners and chooses sinners among sinners. Um, yes, God does choose some over others, but not because some are better than others, but because God is a gracious God. Matter of fact, I don't know. Let's hear it. 
I have a verse here. Tate, could you move forward? I think it's, there you go. It's, it's Titus 3, 3 through 5. Um, notice who is saying this. It is the Apostle Paul, the Jew of Jews, right, who kept the law perfectly. And this is what Paul says. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to what his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God is impartial, right? He doesn't choose you based on how great you are. He chooses you by his own mercy. And that is a wonderful thing. When God sets his love and grace on you, it is freely a part of anything good in you. And this is the same thing that's true for a Jew like Paul and a Gentile like Cornelius. That's very interesting. A few applications, just really quick. Uh, we, we are told here that our God is not a partial God and that he sends out the good news of the gospel indiscriminate to the kind of sinner that is receiving the message of the gospel. So we shouldn't be prejudiced. We shouldn't have prejudice or we shouldn't hold assumptions against anyone. Like that person doesn't deserve the gospel. We shouldn't be like that, should we? Uh, we get the sense here that, that the speaker of the gospel needs as much preparation, right? The apostle Peter himself needs to kind of be prepared, needs to kind of remember who Jesus saves. And that's who we should be too. We should always be thinking, what kind of people does Jesus save? I can't have any prejudice against anyone because Jesus came to save, remember? The unclean, the unworthy, the unlikely, the enemies. That's who Jesus saves. So I can't wave my little judgment hand against them. We also see something else. This is kind of an application for for an unbeliever, you could say. How does God prepare someone to come to him? Notice, uh, preparations are not saving. They're not salvation. But God sometimes works in your heart to bring you to him. He was working in Cornelius' heart, right? He 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 was bringing him along to prepare him for the gospel message. But, but how does God prepare the heart? How does God, how do you know God is preparing your heart and working in you? Well, we see all sorts of things. We see an increase, increased awareness of sin, uh, this sense of your uncleanness. We see an increased realization of God's holiness. Matter of fact, move over to the next slide really quick. Remember Isaiah 6? Isaiah, a really holy man in Israel, sees a vision of the Lord, sees his holiness, in all of its splendor. And what does Isaiah say? He says, woe is me. I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. How do you know that God is preparing your heart for the gospel? You begin to realize your sinfulness. You may have been looking really great on the outside and maybe other people around you would say you're a really great person. But when you come to realize the holiness of the Lord, it it builds in you this increased sense of sin in your life. And you know that God is preparing you. Maybe you have a growing disenchantment with the world's pleasures. Maybe you have a growing disenchantment with the the religions that this world can offer. Just like Cornelius, right? 
I'm after something more. I've seen what these gods provide us, and it is fickle. It is impotent. It is worthless. It doesn't deal with my guilt problem of my heart. I want something more. That's a sign that God may be preparing your heart. And remember, once again, it's, it's, let's not make the mistake that the preparation of the heart is the same thing as salvation. No, God prepares you to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is our next point, actually. We've seen that God saves um, through the same sovereign preparation. But next, let's also see this. God saves by the same gospel message. Clearly, Jesus is not satisfied with Cornelius's religion. He needs something more. Salvation is more than just praying more. Being a Christian is more than just doing good things in your life. It's, it's much more. It's much more. To find God's favor, to find salvation from sin, death, and judgment, you need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and respond to it in believing faith and obedience. That's what it means to be a Christian. So Peter has this message here in Acts 10, 34, all the way down through 43. I'm going to read it really quick because it's important. Peter says this, Truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Interesting. Um, Beginning from Galilee, after the baptism of John, that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in uh, the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge uh, to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And a few things to point out about Jesus' message. One thing, notice uh, Peter's message. Notice Peter doesn't finish his message. Uh, and the Gentiles in verse 44 uh, respond to it before he's even done with his message. But another thing, uh, notice it is a very similar a kind of summation of Jesus' life and what he did that we saw in the Gospel of Mark. A very similar theme, a very similar progression. And this is kind of another reason why I think uh, the Gospel of Mark kind of tracks and follows the preaching of Peter. And Mark writes down the preaching of Peter in a way. It's very focused on Jesus. Uh, Mark's Gospel is the same way. Mark can't take his eyes off of Jesus. And that's what we see in the preaching of Peter. And we see a main point here, basically, that Jesus is Lord of all, right? We see it there in verse 36. It's, uh, it's in parentheses. But really, this is the the point of the entire message. Jesus is Lord over all. Therefore, he provides hope to all. He provides salvation. He provides forgiveness to all people. 
We saw that Jesus was appointed by God, verse 38. Jesus was killed by men, in, in verse 39, in verse 40 through 41, Jesus was raised by God. Notice Peter was an eyewitness that Jesus was no ghost. He ate and drank with Jesus. Verse 42, Jesus was made everyone's judge, the judge of the living and the dead. This is the gospel message that Jesus is the judge. And then in verse 43, here is the good news of the gospel. All of the prophets have been pointing to Jesus and all of the grace of God is found in Jesus, right? Notice what he says. It's very similar to Acts 4.27. To him, Peter says, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You believe in who Jesus is and what he has done and you receive forgiveness of sins. Similar to Acts 4.27. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You believe in who Jesus is and what Jesus did, and you respond to it in the obedience that is faith. This is significant because it shows us what brings forgiveness, right? It's, it's not that having someone's hands on you bring forgiveness, It's not necessarily being baptized that brings you forgiveness. It's not repeating some sort of prayer that brings you forgiveness. It's not even necessarily speaking something out loud that brings you forgiveness. It's not walking an aisle that brings you forgiveness. It's believing. It's believing in who Jesus is and what Jesus did. That is how you receive forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is found in responding to the truth about Jesus in obedience and faith. Right? We saw this with with, with Saul last week, right? The, The gospel call is actually a command. Obey. Obey the gospel. Believe in it. Turn to Jesus. Turn from your sin in faith and repentance. And you will find forgiveness. Forgiveness by believing in who Jesus is. And what he has done. Really quickly, one more point here. God saves also unto the same confirming attestation. That's a loaded statement. And I'll try to break down exactly what it means. This is me. This is me trying to figure out how to summarize everything that's in this kind of concluding section of our passage. Um, attestation means it's proof or it's an evidence of something. It's the validity of something. Um, God saves and he, he, he evidences salvation. We know this obviously through the fruits that are produced in us through the spirit. But we see here something very significant. Uh, Luke and, and particularly more importantly, Jesus himself want to show that forgiveness is found through believing in the name of Jesus Christ. So, the Spirit comes and confirms the salvation of the Gentiles fully and sufficiently and finally through exciting kind of special effects. Right? We, we, we see this, and this is significant because the Spirit interrupts Peter's message here. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. 
because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Notice, the Holy Spirit comes with excitement. Unmistakable excitement. But it's not to show that your conversion will always be exciting. It's not to show that you need to have some sort of significant, powerful, speaking in tongues experience to know that you're the real deal. No, the the Holy Spirit comes with excitement to emphasize that it's faith alone in the name of Jesus that is all that is needed for full and final salvation for sin. It's true with the the Jews in Acts 2, right? Wow, the Spirit of God has come through repentance and faith alone. And it's true of the Gentiles as well. They simply heard the good news of Jesus, believed it, and they received full, final, sufficient forgiveness of sins. And the Holy Spirit comes at this point so that we would not be tempted to think they have to do something else, something more. Remember, such free grace to Gentiles would be absolutely scandalous. And we actually see this in in chapter 11, right? To to a Jew who has lived their whole life thinking a certain way, this was crazy. What? The Holy Spirit given to the Gentiles without anything, without any transformation, any change in them? They don't become Jews first? How does that work? How could the Spirit make his home with such unclean people? Don't they have to get circumcised first? No, we see here that the gospel is good news because it offers free and full, final forgiveness from what all other faiths could not provide. I'm reminded of Acts 15, where they're arguing about this again. And Peter himself says, Why are you putting... God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Notice, you guys want to put like Jewish practices on Gentiles to make them saved? No, that won't work. That didn't save us either. We weren't able to bear that either. We need forgiveness by faith alone in Christ Jesus alone. Or otherwise, we're toasts too. And this is the good news that we hear here in the Gentile conversion. They speak in tongues. They do all these exciting things. But please don't miss the significance. It's not to point to the tongues itself. It's to point to the significance that the Gentiles are saved just as the Jews are. Peter, of course, witnesses to this. He Then in chapter 11, he repeats the whole entire story again. If you're reading this, it gets very redundant, very redundant. And that's why I want to do these all together, because I didn't want to do multiple messages of the same thing. Right? Peter uh, kind of just bears witness of everything that has happened and how the Spirit came and when the Spirit came and what he was doing when he was called and, and, and all of those things. We see that all in, in Acts chapter 11, but the, the significant thing here is verse 17 and 18. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I 
that I could stand in God's way. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God. Then to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Notice, forgiveness of sin produces a repentance that leads to life. Your life will look like repentance, but it's not dependent it's not dependent on a life that you live. It's a result. It's a fruit of all of those things. But the key there, verse 17, they got the same gift we got. And it came to them by believing in the name of Jesus. Isn't that good news to you? Doesn't that show you the amazing freeness that the gospel gives to you? You don't work your way towards forgiveness. It is given to you freely, freely. In Christ Jesus. And notice, they get the same gift of the Spirit. You get the same gift of the Spirit. Why is the Spirit so significant? Is it because uh, you get to speak in tongues for a few minutes? Once again, no, it's a sign pointing to the significance that the Spirit of God is present in your life. Why, why is the Spirit significant? Well, three reasons. It means the power of God is with you. Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Or Galatians 5.17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. It is the, the power in you of divine enablement. And it's the power that raised Jesus from the dead in you, giving life to your mortal bodies without the spirit. You have no hope against the desires of the flesh. But with the Spirit, you fight, you war against the desires of the flesh. It is the power of God. It is the power of God. It's also, it also means the purification of God. We see, we've seen uh, positional purification, right? Forgiveness of sin, declared righteous before God. But we also see this idea of progressive righteousness, the Holy Spirit in you, declaring that you are righteous before God, worthy to be the residence of the Holy Spirit. And he's also working in you to produce the repentance that leads to life progressively making you what you are positionally. That's the good news of the gospel, that, that you have received purification that leads to more and more purification in your life. But what's significant to me is it means the presence of God. It means the presence of God, that the Holy Spirit, the th third person of the Trinity, lives in you. That is wonderful. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. The good news of the gospel is that the Holy Spirit now dwells in you because you are positionally righteous in Christ Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is making you day by day, glimpse by glimpse, into the image of Jesus himself. Now, wait, just, just step back. This is it. That's it. That's the message. The same gospel that's good news to the Jew is good news to the Gentile as well. It's all by faith in Jesus. But step back and just ask yourself the question, what changed for Peter particularly? Was it, was it that a bunch of animals came down from the sky in a sheet? Well, yes and no. It was that Peter realized that the trajectory of the gospel message always was going to the world, always was going to the nations. You remember at the end of Luke's gospel, which is connected 
connected very strongly to Acts. Jesus says this to his apostles, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day be raised, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Uh, Peter knew this message is going to everyone, everywhere. But, but he knew this because of who Jesus was and what Jesus did. I think my favorite verse in this entire passage is Acts 10, 41. Look at it again. Look at the good news of the gospel that is told to you in Acts 10, 41. Peter is saying that he is, witness, he is a witness, along with the other apostles, that Christ has risen on the third day, and he appeared to them. Remember, we talked about how um, it's an important witness because it shows that Jesus wasn't a ghost, right? He wasn't just a figment of their imagination. We ate with him and we drank with him for a long period of time. And he talked to us about the kingdom, as it says in Acts 1, as we already talked about. But notice what Jesus was doing with the apostles. He was eating and he was drinking with them. That's significant to Peter. Because Peter himself knew how unworthy and how unclean he was and how much he did not deserve to be with Jesus. Remember what what Peter was doing like three days before? He was talking to Jesus about how great he was and he was never going to betray Jesus. He was never going to leave Jesus. And then when the going got just a little bit tough with a servant girl, Peter takes off and denies Jesus three times. And Jesus dies, and he rises again. And who does Jesus decide to eat and drink with? Peter. And Peter says to himself, if Jesus forgives me, cleanses me, Jesus and the trajectory, the power of the gospel will cleanse and forgive and pardon everyone. Pardon everyone. It reminds me of one of my favorite passages in Luke. Luke 15, 2. Remember that passage? The gospel according to the Pharisees. Oh, blessed good news. I love the gospel according to the Pharisees. The gospel according to the Pharisees, you maybe never heard it, but it's this. This man receives sinners and eats with them. That's what Jesus says. He pardons, forgives, cleanses, so that you can have fellowship with the eternal triune God. Not by works of yours, done by righteousness, but by his own precious blood. Oh, what a blessed thought. That Jesus sets his gospel mercy and grace and cleansing power on us. Oh, what a blessed thought that no one not even your own self-accusing conscience can stand in Jesus' way. What a blessed thought. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great grace that is ours in the gospel, and we pray that we would have hearts and minds to receive it for all of its power and implications in our own life, and that we'd be free of prejudice to share it with others as well. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.